Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. A lot of news to discuss today. Of course, we begin the show, like most shows, getting right into it. We don't do a lot of intros here, a lot of yammering on about nonsense. We get right into the news, and today is no different. Of course, the breaking news out that DeSantis is shipping illegals into Washington, D.C. Have you seen these reports? Ron DeSantis uh, sending illegals into Washington, D.C., flying them in, busing them in. Uh, he also sent some into Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, uh, just in the last evening, it's been reported that uh, Ron DeSantis shipped somewhere between 75 and 100 illegals into Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Of course, this is a favorite vacation spot of Barack Obama and Tom Hanks and many of the highest of the highest end left-wing elites. I remember just recently, uh, in the last year, Barack Obama had a big party in Martha's Vineyard. He invited many celebrities. John Legend was there, others. And you had to be double-boosted to attend the party. But somehow, even though everyone was double-boosted, a massive COVID outbreak happened. I'm sure there were many illegals working at that party. They were, of course, forced to wear masks. That is how it works among the elite. They don't wear masks but they force the slaves to wear masks. They force, they force people like you, the regular people, to wear masks. That's what's uh, important to them. It's about domination. It always has been. But Ron DeSantis shipping these illegals in. Of course, uh, there's two ways of looking at this. There's the rhetoric angle. There's the political optics angle in which what he is attempting to do, and I think what he's doing successive, uh, successfully, is showing that uh, the left loves illegal aliens. They love illegals coming into the United States just as long as those illegals are not coming into their neighborhoods. Oh, they like it just fine as long as those illegals aren't coming into their neighborhoods. I mean, they have their signs up. I see it in my own neighborhood. People with signs uh, occasionally that say, refugees are welcome here. Everyone's welcome. Muslim refugees, terrorists, they're all welcome here. Rapists, we don't care. You're welcome here in the United States. Uh, just as long as you don't come into my neighborhood. And that's uh, typical of the left. They move into these uh, high-end neighborhoods. They're all white. It's just the same as when you ask them about, oh, really, you don't like America. You think there's countries that do it better than America that are socialist? They say, yeah. And you say, which countries? And they say, Denmark, Finland, Norway. You mean the countries that are more white than we are? Oh, that shuts them up very quickly. I remember a Gavin McInnes uh, rebut to some leftist when he said that in Shut her up in a hurry. So they don't want the illegals in their area. In fact, I remember, oh, it must have been, uh, in fact, it was just about two years ago. I was having a, uh, an allergic reaction to something. I don't know what was in the food ultimately, but my tongue started swelling. I went into Georgetown Hospital, and I was amazed, being from Southern California, that I just walked into the hospital. There were no lines. There were no waiting rooms. It wasn't overloaded with illegals there for every uh, cough and cold because they can get in and not pay. Uh, no, it was uh, pretty empty. And so when people in Washington, D.C., and this is something that became clear to me very quickly, when they talk about the immigration issue, they don't have a real dog in the fight. The only uh, linkage that they have to the issue is that they know that they might be able to hire their housekeeper, their gardeners, uh, just a little bit cheaper than they would uh, if they had to hire a U.S. citizen. But otherwise, they have no linkage to the issue. Their kids go to all-white schools. 
Uh, they don't go to schools where half the kids in the class might not speak any English and in some cases now might not speak any Spanish. They only speak a Central American tribal tongue in some cases. My dad in the criminal defense field in California has run into this. He, has, he speaks fluent Spanish, but he'll have clients come in from south of the border and they don't even speak Spanish. They speak some uh, tribal uh, pidgin language from uh, south of the border, Aztec, Inca-type languages. So there's the optics of this, and I think DeSantis wins there. But then there are, of course, the real effects. And what are you really talking about? Now, I don't think this is something that's going to happen at any sort of scale. But what I think would be a more effective use of uh, these uh, miles on a plane, and in fact, maybe even a bigger optical win, would be if DeSantis took this plane and instead of flying the illegals into Martha's Vineyard or flying them into uh, Washington, D.C., flew them the hell back to Mexico. I think that would be a much better use of everyone's time and resources is to fly them back to Mexico. Now, uh, conservatives will very quickly say, well, uh, I don't think the federal government would approve of that, Jacob. I, I think they wouldn't like that. The, the rules say that he would have to get federal clearance. Well, they don't particularly approve of him doing what he's doing now either. They don't particularly approve of that either. And then you have to ask the question, well, whose custody are these illegals actually in? Who are these people? I mean, are they in ICE detention? Are they in uh, federal detention? Are they under state custody? Are they being released into another state? It's not exactly clear. At least it hasn't been clear to me looking around and, and, and looking into this story. It hasn't been very clear at all. So that's the other function here that, it, that it's not exactly known. But I think he should fly them into Mexico. You think about the actual effects of this. And what you're talking about are that these illegals can make a lot more money in Washington, D.C. or the surrounding areas in Virginia and Maryland or in Martha's Vineyard or whether they went into Boston than they would ever make in these endemically poor border towns and towns in central Texas and towns in central Florida where uh, the median household income is not high. I was looking at a Texas town recently that was uh, outside of Fort Worth. And the median income was $18,000 a year. I mean, people don't make any money there. They certainly don't have a lot left over to pay uh, to some illegal alien to be their housekeeper or their uh, gardener or anything like that. And, and certainly the illegals will make more than they'd make there, and they'd make more than the Native Americans, uh, meaning uh, people that were born in the U.S., make in these endemically poor towns. So this is encouraging illegals to come. I mean, you tell them, we'll give you a free ride into Boston, we'll give you a free ride into, into Washington, D.C., where you will make much more money than you'll make in Central Florida or in Texas. I think that's a big win for them. There's a shortage of uh, those kind of blue-collar workers here in uh, the D.C. area. I'm sure it's the same in, in the Northeast and the rest of the uh, Northeast area. I'm not sure if I consider D.C. mid-Atlantic or Northeast. Uh, it's definitely the Northeast milieu, but... Uh, Geographically speaking, it might be more mid-Atlantic. So you're kind of encouraging them to come over by doing this, for one thing. Now, again, is this going to happen at scale? I don't think so. But the other part is, you know, these people aren't going to necessarily all stay in metro, you know, D.C. proper, the city, uh, the, the District of Columbia proper. Many of them are going to travel into Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia, of course, has been trending blue over the long term, but trending more red in the short term. Youngkin becoming the governor in Virginia, you are effectively donating Democrat voters to the state of Virginia. 
And you're donating them to the state of Maryland, not that Maryland needed any more of them. I mean, Maryland's got a Republican governor, even though they're a far blue state. But it is one of those strange instances like you've seen in New Jersey with Chris Christie or uh, in Massachusetts with Governor Baker and others, Romney. There is a role for these blue gov- for these red governors in blue states. It's, it's pretty strange. But on average, you aren't helping the Republican cause in the state of Virginia by sending illegals up here. So again, there's, there's, the, there's the rhetorical aspect of this. Oh, look at those uh, leftists in D.C. They don't want the illegals in their part of the country. And that's true. It's a win. It points out the hypocrisy. I don't think this will be done at grand scale. But really, I would, at all levels, much rather see DeSantis ship them right back into Mexico. And I know many of you are going to say, well, uh, the federal government wouldn't approve of this or that, but they don't approve of them being brought into D.C. either. So that's the other part of that. They don't approve. And there may be new implications if you're talking about, uh, if you are talking about issues of going across international borders. Uh, but maybe this is what's going to happen, have to happen. Maybe what's going to need to happen is that Red states are going to need to pass state laws against illegal immigration and are going to need to develop in their own legislation and throughout case law, because surely these laws will be challenged, the ability to deport people themselves. And of course, California won't follow and New Mexico, which kind of leans blue, won't follow. And Arizona, which, well, they're red, but they've been floating back and forth because of voter fraud and things they won't follow. Uh, but, But what DeSantis did, again, Messaging-wise, makes a lot of sense. Gets him into the news, gets him headlines, uh, gets him uh, TPUSA shout-outs and the like. But what is he really doing? What he's doing is shipping Democrat voters into uh, parts of the country that don't need any more Democrat voters. Certainly, Virginia is turning around slowly but surely, and now we've got new Democrat voters or eventual Democrat voters in the form of these illegals. And also, the illegals don't mind, I'm sure. They're going to make a hell of a lot more money, as I said, uh, up here in the Northeast than they're going to make in El Paso, or many of these very just dirt poor places in Texas and even in Central Florida, just dirt poor. I mean, some of these places, nobody makes any money. I mean, you you see why everyone leaves because it's just there's no opportunity. There's no wealth effect whatsoever. And uh, somebody says here in the live chat, it's such a ridiculous stunt to pull. And it is weird DeSantis is mirroring Abbott. Well, yeah, it is a stunt. That's exactly what it is. It's not going to happen, I'm sure, at any large scale. It points out the hypocrisy of the left. But again, at all levels, I'd rather see DeSantis just send them right back into Mexico, where they belong. And I know I'm going to get some people in the comments that are going to say, well, uh, they're Central Americans. Yeah, some of them are, I'm sure. But that's also the biggest scam in town. You do know most of the illegals are from Mexico. When they're honest, when they're talking to their lawyers, they're from Mexico. When they get to the border, and if they were from Mexico, they wouldn't get to just stay in the United States because Mexico doesn't have the same status as those further out countries like Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador. Well, then they say they're from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. But a lot of them are, in fact, just Mexicans. They're from Mexico. Uh, And they lie about where they're actually from. They don't have any papers. You have no way to tell. That happens a lot. Of course, the other big story out this week, we have to get to this here, we got to move here, uh, is uh, the inflation numbers. Inflation numbers are out, and they're not getting any better. This, of course, sent the market into a tailspin uh, on Tuesday. New York Times says inflation remained uncomfortably rapid in August, despite a decline in gas costs as prices continued to soar across uh, 
a broad array of other goods and services, evidence that the sustainable slowdown the Federal Reserve and White House have been hoping for remains elusive. Prices rose 8.3% from a year earlier compared to 8.5% in July, a fresh consumer price index report released Tuesday showed. Now again, energy prices aren't included in the CPI. They aren't included, nor are housing prices. And the reason they're not included, and we've talked about this before, at least on the old show on censored uh, TV, was that uh, when it came to the very high inflation rates of the 70s and the early 80s, uh, the Social Security Administration said, we're not going to be able to keep up with the liabilities of this index against true inflation. They said, we need a new number. So they created a new number called the Consumer Price Index, which didn't account for fuel prices and housing prices. And when they did that, and they changed the way they surveyed it, so basically the way that CPI has come up with, many of you don't know this, is that there are thousands of uh, federal employees that go out and they go to grocery stores with a little iPad system and they literally survey uh, the prices of certain items at these stores, grocery stores, uh, sporting goods stores, other place, shoe stores, and they literally go with an iPad and do this by hand. It's a very imprecise uh, business in terms of doing this, but it is the way that it's been done. So they created this so that the federal government would not have to send out the benefits that they would have otherwise had to send out. They could reduce the rate at which the government's tab to pay out to Social Security holders uh, went up. That's what it was really about in uh, the, the creation of CPI. But they mention this. It says uh, a still rapid increase and not as much of a moderation as economists had expected. The disappointing data came even as falling gas prices pulled inflation lower with rapidly rising costs of rent, healthcare, restaurant meals, and goods such as furniture offsetting the relief customers were feeling at the fuel pump. Compounding the bad news, a core index that strips out gas and food uh, doesn't get a sense for the underlying inflation trends that uh, was more than expected. Of course, they mentioned that at the end. Of course, the, the price of fuel plays into the price of everything else because you have to transport it from point A to point B. You have to buy energy to fuel up the factory. So it plays through those other prices whether you want it to or not. Uh, Axios here says, uh, and this is where this chart is from that I'm showing for those of you watching live uh, on video on YouTube or watching the repeat on Rumble or other places, uh, two U.S. inflation rates, bad and worse. And this is one thing that I've been talking about for the last year. If you're in middle America, if you're in Dubuque, Iowa, maybe inflation is bad. But if you're in the coastal cities, if you're in certain cities or the surrounding areas around this country, and it shouldn't be this way because a lot of the stuff comes in from China straight to the coast. But unfortunately, that's how it's going. Inflation is even worse. Consumer price index is 8.3%. But as you look at some of these major metro centers, uh, the Phoenix metro area uh, down in Arizona saw inflation rise 13% year over year, the highest local metropolitan reading in the country. Second highest rate is 11.7%. And in the Atlanta area, home to uh, 6 in 10 voters represented by Senator Raphael Warnock, the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, uh, where Marco Rubio is facing a challenge from Rep. Val Demings, clocked in the third biggest uh, local report. White House uh, Chief of Staff Ron Klain and other top aides were also watching closely AAA's update on gas prices, uh, 371 a gallon down from 502 in June, but still very high around the country. And prices are higher out west, they note, uh, gas sitting at 492 in Nevada and 402 in Arizona. 
So the Fed's lowering, uh, you know, of the economic stimulus, the lowering of asset purchases, the raising of interest rates is not having the effect that they had hoped for. It is not reducing inflation. Now, there are two questions that come of that if you look one layer deeper. The first is, what precisely makes them believe that raising interest rates is going to slow inflation? Now, they point to the one example of Volcker in the 80s, killing inflation to some degree by raising interest rates massively, massively raising interest rates. But on its face, maybe what's happening is people are seeing interest rates go up. Most Americans, I think, think in terms of, at least for large purchase items, monthly payments, not in terms of the actual face value price. They see that the payment for that new car they were looking at buying keeps going up every month. So they say, I better go buy it now. And part of the reason it's going up is because the Fed is raising rates. I don't think that the Fed may be having the effect that they think they're having with raising interest rates. They may be, in fact, fueling inflation by raising rates. And I know that goes against the academic literature. It goes against the assumptions made by economists. But the assumptions made by economists are wrong a lot of times. I mean, one of the things that I like to do is I like to go back and, and, and watch dated interviews. And, and one of my favorite sources of this, because he just interviewed so many people for so many years, and his interviews are out there on his website. You can watch all of them. It's really wonderful, is Charlie Rose. I'll go on charlierose.com. He's got interviews all the way back to, I think, the late 80s. And he, he just interviewed everybody under the sun. And I'll go on and I'll watch what you know the Fed chairman was saying to Charlie Rose in 1992. Or I'll go on and watch what the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the VP of global economics was saying from Goldman Sachs to Charlie Rose in 2007. Watched that one the other night, and it turns out that they weren't at all concerned about mortgages. Not one mention of the word mortgage or default or anything in 2007 as the market started to melt down. So I like to watch these dated interviews because it gives you a sense for who was right, who was wrong, but, but more importantly, what ways of thinking were right, what 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 chains of logic turned out to be right? Which logical frameworks turned out to be wrong? I'll do this a lot. And uh, these economists, these people that are making the claim that raising interest rates will uh, cut inflation, their assumptions here, these are the same people, these are the same ways of thinking that have been wrong so often. Somebody says here in the chat, is this live, Jacob? It is, in fact, live, uh, Mr. Long. Uh, it is live. So uh, that is something I like to do. And, and it's not at all clear that that is true, that raising these rates will, will in fact cut inflation. The other question to ask, this is the second question, is let's say that is the case. Let's say that it will, in fact, uh, lessen inflation by raising interest rates. Well, the next question is, is that enough when you have this constant fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C., these massive spending bills? And moreover, the massive debt relief, the White House's uh, student loan bailout that they're planning, not making people pay their student loans, all these fiscal policy moves coming out of uh, elected officials in Washington, D.C., elected representatives, the, the president, the executive branch, which are inherently inflationary. And that's the other question. So is what, is what the Fed's doing even working? And even if it is working, is it enough? The other thing I think you might see is you may see the dollar weaken. We may be hit with a triple whammy here. The Fed's raising of rates may, in fact, raise inflation. The White House fiscal, po fiscal policy may raise inflation. And then the dollar may start declining. And the dollar has been surprisingly strong throughout all of this, but it may 
begin to decline. Those three things in combination could be an inflationary firestorm uh, that, that a lot of people won't know what to do with. You think that 13% inflation is high in Phoenix, you may see 13% across the country and 20% in the coastal cities. And again, a lot of this comes down to how you measure it. But you can use this measure, you use that measure. The other thing I can tell you is that if you look back, and some people will say, you have to use the inflation measure that you used in the 1970s today. And if you use that, our inflation is really higher. Well, then the experts will say, that's not correct. That number from the 70s isn't the right number. Okay, fine. Let's, let's give them that. Well, what if you used the inflation numbers from today, the ways of calculating inflation today, and you calculated the data from the 1970s through those methodologies? What does that tell you? Well, if you use today's CPI inflation numbers to go and calculate inflation in the 70s, what you find is that inflation today is essentially as bad. It's a few basis points better than it was at the peak of the Jimmy Carter era of inflation. It's like 0.3% less than it was at the peak percent of Jimmy Carter inflation. The other part about this is it's more persistent. It's just keeping up. And we could be at the beginning of an inflationary cycle. I'm not saying we are. In fact, I have been somebody who has said that inflation could wane. But it's just harder and harder for that to happen when the fiscal policy out of the White House and out of Congress continues to be so loose. They need to tighten the purse strings in Congress. They need to stop spending so much money. You have to stop doing uh, $10 billion, $12 billion, $15 billion supplementals to Ukraine. Because as you all know, that money doesn't necessarily go to Ukraine. Some of it does, but a great majority of it goes to defense contractors right here in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia and around the country. They pay out bonuses. All of this policy, but it's not just the Ukraine policy. It's the health and human services policy. We're going to get to some of that later in the show. It is contributing to inflation. That much to me is very clear. And, it, and I think that the economy would love to have a cessation in this inflation. But it's not happening. And it's not happening because of the actions of policymakers in D.C., I think more so than those of the Fed. That is very clear to me. Looking at our live chat here, we have a number of people uh, in the live chat. Somebody says here, love Predator DC content, Mr. Will. Very funny show, the way you ask the questions and then pose is hilarious. Well, yeah, it's a great show. For those of you listening who haven't checked out Predator DC, it's a wonderful program we do. It's essentially a remake of To Catch a Predator, but with much more sophisticated modern day tactics because the tactics of uh, Dateline NBC wouldn't work today. You don't just go in the chat rooms, make a landline call, say, hey, come over. It wouldn't work. So everyone can go and check out Predator DC as well if you're listening here. Now, did you see this? The FBI going in and seizing the phone of Mike Lindell. You might know him as the My Pillow guy. Seizing his phone. He was apparently uh, in a drive-thru ordering some food and then cars pulled up in front of him to the side and behind. They boxed him in. They jumped out of the car, the FBI did, and they stole his cell phone. And it's not the first instance of this happening around the country. Uh, there was a Pennsylvania congressman, pro-Trump congressman, who this happened to uh, just recently. There have been others who have had their phones seized all around the country. FBI pulls up, they just steal your phone. 
Lindell is the latest Trump ally to receive a warrant or a subpoena by the FBI. Last week, the Biden DOJ hit dozens of Trump aides and allies with subpoenas as part of their investigation into efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 U.S. election over claims of fraud. Well, uh, this continues. 18 months into the Joe Biden administration, there is no sense of uh, being magnanimous. There's no sense that they are going to have a detente with the right that they're going to cool this off. They just keep escalating more and more. The, the arrest abandoned by Democrats in New York, the FBI seizing people's phones all around the country, kicking in their doors. They're completely out of control. And I, and I don't know anymore exactly what I'm supposed to say about the FBI that hasn't already been said. But one thing I will say is that the Sean Hannity's of the world that say the rank and file are great people. And Sean Hannity gets up there. He's got his FBI pin and his CIA pin. I think his parents were in the FBI or the CIA or both. Uh, probably not both back then, maybe one each. They're wrong. The, the rank and file of the FBI are not great people. They are not wonderful people. They are the people that actually go out and kick in your door. They are the people that actually go out and shoot your dog. They are the people that actually go out and snatch your cell phone. And then they shrug. They shake your hand. Maybe they pat you on the back, say they're a big fan of your work, but they're just taking orders. I've seen it. I've been there. I've been on the receiving end of it. The FBI has been snooping in my emails, subpoenaing, search warranting my call logs, my records, using national security letters against me personally for two years plus. No, really, no. It started in 18, so four years. Jesus, I, I, I underestimated by half. They said, we need a warrant of Jacob Wool's uh, calls, cell phones, everything, because he released the Roger Stone jury questionnaires that proved it was a fixed trial, that proved it was a corrupt trial. I did so as a journalistic effort. And they thus tried to find out who my sources were by doing phone taps, by uh, search warranting my call logs, you name it, emails, all of that. This is what people like me go through uh, re relentlessly, relentlessly. And they say, no, there's somebody in the chat here saying no one stole anyone's phone. No, I mean, whether you call it stole, whether you call it getting fraudulent uh, warrants that you bring in a drumhead trial to a secret judge, whatever you want to call it. The point is that the legal system in this country, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they have been uh, turned on their heads. They have been used as a weapon, a political weapon, and it isn't the first time. And also, in the interest of truth, it's not something that has exclusively been done by one side against another. As of late, it has been Democrats using it against Republicans, but it has gone the other way on occasion. If you want to look back and, and you look into what the Bush administration did uh, to keep from coming out secrets about the rendition program, about the NSA's uh, warrantless wiretaps, about all of these various programs that were revealed by journalists like James Risen in uh, the, I guess some people in the UK, they call it the noddies, the, the O, you know, to the, the 00 to uh, 010 period of time, 2000 to 2010 during the Bush administration. You can find examples that go that direction. If you want to look at what the George H.W. Bush administration did using the CIA, the FBI, uh, and other agencies uh, against people uh, like the reporter, what was his name? Uh, Gary, uh, Jesus, the reporter, they made the movie about him uh, that revealed the, the you know, DEA and CIA's complicity in, in smuggling drugs. Movie about that came out. 
and then he was ultimately suicided, uh, found dead with two shots to the head. And I think when he was found dead, it wasn't during the Bill Clinton administration, by the way. It was during Bush Jr.'s administration years later. So this stuff happens. It's not that it just goes one way. The deep state has been weaponized both ways in the past. The scale at which it has been weaponized now against Republicans is unheard of. And the conspiracy that takes place between big tech, between the government, between uh, all of these entities is in its scale unprecedented. Because you, you live in a world now where you can't get out what you want to say without the big tech platforms, essentially, okay? You can email press releases all you want, but you can't really get out your response. And you live in a world where the deep state can come after you, and you can't respond to the public in a mainstream outlet which will be seen by the public. The media might clip a phrase here, or a sentence there, or maybe they'll just make up a quote from you, as they've done for me many times. They've just lied and said, Walt told us this, didn't. I have the call recorded. They're just complete liars. Uh, so it is an unprecedented uh, sense of, of conspiracy that has taken over, a sense of collusion between these various entities of state power that exist currently. That's the difference. And I think that's why it, it, it feels uh, so present right now than, than it ever has. So here we go. We got to keep moving here. We go to uh, the Biden administration. They're, they're doing a new program. Uh, it's a program focused on health. Here's the story out from the Washington Free Beacon. It says Biden administration is planning vending machines. They're placing vending machines, rather, filled with drug supplies in rural Kentucky. The report says the Biden administration is set to spend $3.6 million to deploy vending machines filled with drug supplies in rural Kentucky, an effort the Biden administration claims will reduce stigma for drug users. The project from the National Institutes of Health was launched in August and will study the effectiveness of harm reduction kiosks in rural Appalachia uh, that contain, quote, injection equipment, naloxone, uh, fentanyl test strips, hygiene kits, condoms, and other supplies. The vending machines allow drug users to obtain items uh, such as syringes without interacting with a health professional in hopes of eliminating the stigma that comes with visiting in-person harm reduction facilities, according to the health agency, if you can still call the NIH a health agency. That's, of course, Anthony Fauci's outfit. And the thing about this is a lot of times, uh, in earnest, these people that push this idea of harm reduction, that push the idea of handing out syringes, they say, listen, we don't want people to use fentanyl any more than you do. But better they use fentanyl and don't get AIDS in the process because they're using a dirty needle, then they use a dirty needle, they get AIDS, and now they're more expensive to the healthcare system. And I, over the years, have even been amenable to at least hearing out these claims. I know a lot of people have. The problem comes when you actually try this out, and it turns out it doesn't do any good at all. Drug use goes up. Uh, the rate at which dirty needles are laying all over the ground go up. They don't dispose of the needles properly. They're laying all over the park. There have been cases, and there are very sad cases, where a child on the bus in San Francisco uh, gets pricked by a needle that's left on the floor of the bus or uh, of the train, pricked uh, when they sit down, what have you, and then they come down with uh, hepatitis C or HIV, no fault of their own, because a drug user left one of these needles around. The more needles you have, it seems, uh, it, doesn't, it just doesn't do any good nor do the hygiene kits, the condoms, the fentanyl test strips. It, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. Uh, the results are in 
on all of this. Somebody writes in the chat here, when libertarians said drugs uh, should be legal, we didn't mean the government should be encouraging drug use. This is completely insane. Well, that's what happens. I mean, and, and I think I will say you libertarians have been wrong about this drug issue. I mean, I remember debating back in 2017 Stefan Molyneux, very prominent uh, libertarian, anarchist even you could call him, and he said, uh, you need to legalize all drugs. What will happen is they'll become commoditized. The drug cartels will go away. It'll become a legal business. And he, they were all just dead wrong. And now these experiments have been tried. Decriminalization, full legalization, even in the pot field, uh, no pun intended. You have uh, people that say, we're going to do legal pot, but then they have to pay 50% taxes or they have to pay whatever taxes. They have to get licensures. They have to pay for all this stuff. The drug cartels don't have to pay for any of it. They undercut them on price. So the drug cartels are more present than ever in the marijuana business, more present than ever, because they have all the same upsides and the downsides are much lower in terms of consequences. And you can say the same for all the other drugs that have been decriminalized or legalized. The usages are up. The deaths and injuries are up. And my basic argument back then was that if you had looked at the data, the more that was spent on drug enforcement, the fewer deaths and injuries you had. And it was a pretty clear correlation done from, I think it was the, uh, the what is it, the Portland, uh, the paper up in Portland that did this study, and it was very well done. And it found that basically you have to be tough on drugs. And if you're tough on drugs, legally speaking, drug deaths and injuries go down. They don't go down to zero. And people say, well, you got to fight the war on drugs for 40 years, man, and it hasn't worked. I'm still high on dope. It's like, well, what, what do you define as worked? If you define worked as reduced deaths and injuries from drugs in Harlem, reduced the crack ep epidemic significantly, reduced the number of meth labs uh, running in this country constantly, then it worked. It didn't bring the number to zero. No uh, policy ever would bring it down to zero. But you look at the other side of things, and, and now we've gotten to see what the results of those have been. Five years after that debate, I had more than five years, hard to believe. More than five years after that debate that I had with Stefan Molyneux, I think it was April of 17, I debated him. More than five years later, and he, he got very triggered in that. He blocked me. He, uh, he hung up the phone on me halfway through the debate. And they pointed, they said, Portugal, decriminalize all drugs. It's great. No, in Portugal, you cannot sit on the corner and shoot up heroin. You just can't. It's illegal to use drugs in public. Now it happens all around this country. So they, so they, they misplaced the example of Portugal completely. They mischaracterized it. They were totally dishonest. They pushed for legalization of drugs. And now the country's got a drug problem that's completely out of control. The United States has a drug problem now, which is utterly and completely out of control. And the related crimes, the property crimes, the assaults, the batteries, the shootings, the robberies, that are all related to this laissez-faire attitude towards drugs, roll out drugs, release drug criminals from jail, hand out needles. It's all been a massive failure. It has made these cities that have done this, made the states that have done this worse off, worse for the wear. Hasn't been good for the drug users themselves. Hasn't been good for the people who have to deal with the crimes they commit, the needles they leave around. Hasn't been good for anyone. It has been good for literally no one uh, in all of this, I don't know who comes out in the winter in legalizing all drugs besides maybe, and j just maybe, the drug cartels, slightly, and drug dealers who don't have to go to jail when they're caught. Basically, that is the only people of win. Somebody says here in the chat, uh, remember vagrancy laws. Yeah, well, vagrancy laws. Oh, I remember when you saw a guy six foot four dressed up as a lady walking down the street, you say, oh, that's a transvestite. 
Now we have transgender. I mean, it's just the, the, the speed at which the country has gone right off the cliff has been remarkable. And, and that is why I will say, when I do this show here, and I, and I appreciate all of you listening and, and, and your, your contribution, your help to the show, but I don't sit here and claim that we're waking people up everywhere, we're setting off fires in their minds, we're going to change the country and turn it around from right here at this microphone. I, I don't do that. And maybe some of you all wake up, and there will be people here and people there that I wake up, and, and they, they tune in and they, they change the way they think, and it's all for the better, and that's fantastic. But I will not pretend that there are enough people in the country who can have their mind changed that from microphones like this, where you're going to change the fate of the country. And I think the best example of that is Alex Jones. And I'm a huge fan of Alex Jones, but he sat at that microphone for 20 years and he said, we're waking people up. We're turning on minds. We're the, the new world order is on the run. We're on the march. And what, what ultimately happened is that the country 20 years in, uh, to that and longer than that, really 27 years in, in his case, I guess, was worse off than when he started by far. By every measurable statistic, the country, everything that he thought would go wrong, it went wrong times 10. The police state in this country, the foreign wars, the uh, growth of the deep state, the globalization of government, the rolling out of pandemics to control people's lives, it all happened just as he said it would, but it was 10 times worse and people didn't wake up. So I, I'm not convinced of that. What I am convinced of is I can help you all who are listening navigate the world, know what you should maybe worry about, know what you shouldn't worry about. That's, I think, the best I can do from here and, and hopefully entertain you a little bit in the process. Uh, so I thank you all for your support. Of course, within one episode of our two episodes of, of giving out the PayPal, uh, we were instantly attacked and PayPal banned. Uh, so I was ready for that. But PayPal banned me. I think a few donations. And I thank all of you for, for donating. I'm going to do your donation notes uh, on the next show because uh, I, I have, uh, in fact, a, a lawyer's meeting to get to here um, coming up. I'm going to get to the donation uh, notes on the next show. But uh, we did have a number of donations, and I'll get to those notes uh, you can still go, I believe, to cash up at Real Jacob Wool, cash app uh, Real Jacob Wool. If you'd like to contribute to the show and send in a note, you go to jacobwool.org slash contact. Uh, but I, I thank all of you for supporting the show. It's, it's uh, you know, a big thing stepping out here, stepping outside the network. It was wonderful to work with uh, Censored.TV for, for years, and they paid me well, and it was a great relationship. I have nothing bad to say about them. It was a wonderful opportunity. But you break out on your own, and, and we definitely... Uh, need your support. So PayPal banned the account. They banned my account. That's what happened there. I see people asking. So um, somebody else says, I've been watching you since you started on Censored. You've done really a really good job. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, we go here now to uh, the next story I want to talk about here, which is which is an interesting phenomenon. I know I've talked about it before. But the other night, I was just curious. I looked into Jim Cramer. He's been wrong on so many predictions lately. And um, it mentioned that he had been on 60 Minutes. And, and there was a report he'd been on 60 Minutes. It was a little bit of a disastrous appearance. I wanted to see the interview. And so I look it up. It's not there. And I'm thinking, well, what in the hell is uh, going on here? How uh, is uh, this interview missing? I mean, 60 Minutes is the most you know, successful television show ever. Surely I should be able to find this interview. But no, it was just gone. It was just missing. I looked and looked and looked. I put out a post on Telegram asking people to try to find it. 
It was gone. I couldn't even order it on DVDs. They were sold out everywhere. Uh, it wasn't on Paramount+. Plus. It wasn't archived anywhere on the internet. It was just disappeared. I mean, I looked everywhere. And this interview of uh, Jim Cramer, this interview of Jim Cramer on uh, 60 Minutes was just completely missing in action. The best I could do is find a kind of a partial transcript of the interview. And it does bring out this this truth, which is that you are told often that, oh, if you post it online, it never, ever goes away. And that is just wrong. And I think what hasn't been examined closely enough is the way that things disappear from the Internet. The Internet's so large that everything can't possibly be archived. Most things, I would say, in this day and age are not archived. If you look at the Wayback Machine and you look for um, archives of things, yes, if you're looking at certain websites, there will be archives. But most of the Internet is not archived. There's not enough server space to archive most of the Internet any longer. It's too large. But that's the issue of archiving. The other thing that happens is stuff just disappears. I mean, like if you're an average anonymous person, okay, if you don't have a bunch of other third parties writing things about you online, if you're just the average person that has, you know, your LinkedIn page, your Facebook, your Instagram, your own social media, if you decide that you want to be off the internet completely, which may be a good move, by the way, for a lot of people. In fact, I I wrote this article called 19 Rules, uh, and it's hard to believe it was a while ago now I wrote that article, but I think it's a good one. I think it's a very good article on my Substack. I think it's called Jacob Wool's 19 Rules. Um, wonderful article. But one of the things I talked about, I said, for, for the average person, for most people, you want to get a job on Wall Street, you want to work in publishing, you want to work uh, in the defense industry, you want to go work in a, for a police department, it probably behooves you just to not be on the internet. I mean, sure, if you want to have you know a Spotify account that's not under your real name, that you listen to music, fine. I mean, but, but you, you probably don't benefit from having a LinkedIn at all, most people. You probably don't benefit from having a Twitter account at all, a public YouTube channel at all, a Facebook account, an Instagram account. You probably actually derive zero benefit from it. The only benefit that's derived from any of it probably goes to those companies who take your data and and sell it to advertisers who then advertise to you. That's probably it. That's probably the only measurable benefit that comes after it, accrues, that comes out of it is accrued to Google. There are plenty of exceptions, I'm sure. But if you deleted yourself from the internet, but within probably 14 months, you would be gone. There would be no trace of you. If you looked on Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, any other search engine under the sun, if we went to direct links, if we searched the actual databases, within 12 to 18 months, you would be gone from the internet. Somebody says here in the chat, I have the 19 rules on my desk, especially the one about relationships and real estate investments. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good article. I appreciate hearing that. So the point is, things can be disappeared from the internet. Now, what what's really remarkable, though, is when you have something that that isn't your anonymous LinkedIn, let's say, out there, you're listening to the show that disappears, when it is an episode of 60 Minutes, how does a whole episode of 60 Minutes just disappear out of existence? How does that happen precisely? That's what I want to know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. And I'm getting closer to figuring out how that happens. And so you, you look into this, and, and so the, the episode of, of CBS uh, 60 Minutes with Jim Cramer just gone. Um, it, you'll find the same thing. If you try to go watch a full episode of The O'Reilly Factor, 
because there's so many episodes and they were on for so long and it was the best cable, the, the best rated cable TV show, you'll probably find some, but not many. I mean, and you'll have to search really hard. And that's because when there was the Me Too thing and Fox News kicked him out, Fox News hired a, a quadroon, a, a massive number of contractors. They took a shotgun approach to removing any trace of Bill O'Reilly's episodes on that network from the internet. So it doesn't matter, like if it's a LA Times article about an O'Reilly segment, they'll still have the video player embedded, but the video won't work. And they literally, what they do is they go online, they file tons of copyright complaints, they file tons of um, uh, Fair Use Act complaints, uh, they file tons of explicit content complaints, whatever. They flood the systems with all of those complaints with mostly robots and, and troll farms in India and stuff, but they have the strategy designed here in the U.S., and they can remove something. And then right down to the point where they actually buy up all the DVD copies. And yes, they did that too. It is amazing. Amazing. Uh, this person says, interviews can disappear easily because hosting video is very expensive. Hosting expert. That's exactly right. So if you talk about uh, just the, the, the server space to host the video, and then the bandwidth, this is the other part, the bandwidth out. This person is a hosting expert. See, I get a lot of p experts in all kinds of different fields, individual experts from different fields that uh, write into the show, and this is one of the, the, the values of having the audience. But it is very expensive to host video. And so you imagine, like, if it's an old, old, old interview, uh, you may have, like, a, a single-digit number of people per month who go to watch that interview, Meanwhile, they have to host it, or at least they have to store it. It has to be ready to go out on bandwidth, maybe not super quickly. It can have a little buffering, but it has to be ready to go out at some point. And that is a very tough thing. That's why YouTube made the change to where now when you look something up on YouTube, you don't see the 13 pages of results that are really good results. You see like eight results or 12 results, and then you see, or six results, and then you see a bunch of mainstream media content maybe on that topic because YouTube has determined that the mainstream media content on the topic is um, more often viewed. And so they'll, they'll serve that stuff up more readily. They'll put that stuff on the fast servers. They'll bury everything else way down deep into a server farm that's not connected to six foot you know, wide fiber. And if they have to pull that up because somebody finds a link somewhere, they will, but they don't want to serve it up and then have to go pull it. They just serve you the most popular stuff. And this is what has happened. So, yes, it is It is very expensive to host video, uh, to serve it up to people. That is a reality of this. Uh, so it is uh, very, very tough. And um, somebody asked, how does YouTube have such a large number of HE videos? Well, that's a whole show. That, in fact, that's probably five episodes. But one of the tactics I described is one of the way they do it. So, yes, it's easy to make an interview disappear for that reason. Nobody wants to host video they don't have to host. Uh, and so they, they get rid of it. But man, 60 minutes, it's gone. It's just gone in Jim Cramer's case. Now, my hypothesis about why it's gone is because Jim Cramer, as you can see on the screen, if you're watching, uh, has written a number of books over the years. Many of them, I think, or maybe all of them published by Simon & Schuster, big publishing house. And they are owned by Paramount, which is the same parent company as CBS. So perhaps as he's writing these books, they're trying to sell these books. That interview didn't go well. Uh, what happens is that you know, they say, hey, they talk, one arm touch the other, they say, get rid of this uh, interview. And pretty quickly, <clears throat> it disappears. It's no longer for sale. It's not out there. You can't watch it. So things disappear from the internet. Uh, they disappear in a way that I think they didn't disappear before. 
because there's so much more stuff that, that people have to host and, and keep up with and list. And so it's much easier to make things disappear today than it used to be. Um, and uh, this person says here, I remember when the MSM did not have such a large influence on YouTube. Uh, then Trump got elected and they needed to adjust the algorithm. That's true. I mean, I remember it was just like one day. And I think it was like early 2018. That's, that's in fact, that's when I remember it, it happening. And all of a sudden, you'd look up Jacob Wool and you wouldn't see the hundreds of videos that I had published or that I had done over the years with other people. Um, there's a video out there of me being interviewed on a show called Tasty Trade that's got 250,000 views. Um, there's a video from a local news station about me when I was 17 years old that's got 300,000 views. And good luck finding those videos on YouTube now. Good luck. I mean, they're still public. I can go find the links. I can click them. They're public. The comments are there. They, they work. But you can't find them. You can find Stephen Colbert, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow. They just serve up all that stuff. And on virtually any topic you look up, they just serve up that stuff. So it is it is a strange thing. It, it makes the platform, I think, a lot less useful. Um, but uh, yeah, the database load gets rid of the old content. Uh, the content ROI, meaning what are they paying to host it versus what are they making from it? Yeah. But you'd think with 60 Minutes being being uh, the, the kind of kind of show of historical record that it is, I mean, I'm sure they've got it all still on tapes and hard drives for their own uh, edification, but maybe they're not serving it. It's just, uh, it's, it's very interesting. But, okay, we go here now to this report out on the F-35 uh, having Chinese parts in it. And I've talked about this for a long time, but there, there are Chinese parts all throughout the defense sector. And in many parts of the defense sector, you're not allowed to have Chinese parts. In fact, in most parts of the defense sector, uh, here in the U.S., if you're selling to the Defense Department, cannot have Chinese parts because China's an adversary, this, that, or the other. There are exceptions. But what I would say is that there are two kinds of uh, you know, defense products that are sold, those which have Chinese parts and get caught, and those which have Chinese parts and don't get caught. Because the, the reality is there's just so many things made in China that what exactly can you make without some Chinese part at some level? And then within the defense sector, you have contractors, prime contractors, and they have subcontractors, then subcontractors to the subcontractors, then subcontractors to those subcontractors. And you can only have so much visibility over that entire supply chain. So we look here uh, at a new report out this week from Bloomberg. F-35s all contain China-made alloy banned by law, Pentagon says. Alloy and magnet poses no risk to the security or flight safety a security waiver needed to resume deliveries, avoid retrofits. So they're going to ask for a security waiver. I'm sure they'll get it. But it said every one of the more than 825 F-35 fighter jets delivered so far contain a component made from a Chinese alloy that's prohibited both by U.S. law and Pentagon regulations, according to the program office that oversees the aircraft. The component, a magnet in an aircraft powering device supplied by Honeywell International Inc., has been used in the plane since 2003. The Pentagon's F-35 program office said on Wednesday, the Pentagon suspended deliveries of new F-35s to make sure the program complies with regulations needed to uh, use the specialty metals. So this is uh, what came out. Now, it could be the case that, you know, Boeing um, has to get the aircraft from uh, they have to get parts from the aircraft from Honeywell. Honeywell then gets parts from a subcontractor. That subcontractor maybe gets this magnet from another subcontractor who maybe down the line ordered something from Alibaba.com. And you can order some amazing things on Alibaba.com. I mean, you want to buy a missile guidance system? 
you can buy it from China and Alibaba. Now, will it make it through customs? Maybe, maybe not, but you can buy it. You want to buy, um, you know, quad tube night vision? You can buy it. You want to buy 100% spec replicas, spec replicas of, you know, a, a Motorola APX 8000 police radio for a little bit less money, not a lot less money, but a little bit less, you can buy it. I mean, it's just, it's just simply amazing. You want to buy fixed wing drones? If you want to be amazed, you go to Alibaba.com, look at fixed wing drones. Again, is the quality the same? Probably not. But you can order a full-scale Predator drone from Alibaba if you want to for about a million dollars, maybe 800000 versus 18 to $20 million to buy it from the U.S. manufacturer. So it's just amazing what's out there. And, and of course, Chinese parts get into the system. It may turn out that this particular magnet, there may not be a U.S. alternative for it. You may have to buy it from China or else completely redesign the aircraft. And so what I will tell you uh, is that is that um, you know I, Russia's military has Chinese parts in it. China's military does, of course. India's military, and we do as well. That is just the reality: is that uh, you're going to have uh, Chinese parts if you're going to make something as complicated as an F-35 fighter jet. It's just the way it is. And so, uh, can you get every single uh, Chinese part out? No. Obviously, the the Pentagon makes this big. Uh, noise about this. Probably they should have just done this quietly and not made it public. But, uh, you know, somebody at Honeywell is probably going to have to pay a fine. Uh, somebody at the sub-subcontractor may end up paying a fine or, you know, going to jail, actually, because the prime contractors, never nobody ever goes to jail there. They have lawyers that are too good at obfuscating things. They have compliance officers that make sure nobody's name signed on papers it shouldn't. I mean, you know, but the little guys end up going to jail uh, when th things like this happen, not the prime contractors. Uh, is it neodymium? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say, I think, in, in the reports I've seen, the precise, uh, you know, rare earth, uh, special metal alloy magnet part that this is. It just doesn't say. It probably has, I think it has to do with the APU. Um, that's what I've, I've read. But it's very tough. It's very tough to make anything like a fighter jet with zero Chinese parts. It's just very, very difficult. So uh, on one hand, it's disturbing. On the other hand, you know, it's more common than you think, and, and there's a reason for it. But thanks so much for joining me today, everyone, on The Jacob Wool Show. Make sure to subscribe, share the show, get the link out there. Of course, you can donate. Go to Cash App Real Jacob Wool to donate to the show and help us out uh, doing this program. I will be back on Monday. I'll read your notes. You can send your notes into jacobwool.org slash contact. Uh, whether you've donated it or not, you can send in your notes there. Of course, donations are appreciated to, to support the broadcast. But more importantly, like, uh, rate us five stars on your podcast app or in the Apple Podcasts. And uh, let's keep growing this program. It'll get better and better as we grow it. And we'll be able to bring you more content. But uh, I really appreciate you joining us here on The Jacob Wool Show. And I'll see you next time. Uh, that would be Monday, 2 p.m. Today's Thursday. I'll see you Monday, 2 p.m. Uh, right here on The Jacob Wool Show. Thanks so much.